Hello, welcome to Bups's Dharma Lounge. Think of this as a time and a place to relax and to talk about all things Dharma. Welcome. Hi, I'm Bupsa Frank Jude, and this is Bupsa's Dharma Lounge. Uh, I want to thank all of you who have emailed, uh, commented, and offered Donna over the last couple of weeks. If you have been enjoying this podcast, um, if you've been learning anything that's been of help, please consider supporting this uh, endeavor of mine. And you could do that primarily, one of the best ways is to subscribe. If you still haven't subscribed, but you're listening, please do. In fact, subscribe to YouTube, uh, to Spotify, to Apple. You're not going to get inundated with any kind of notifications or anything else. You can subscribe and never even know about it when episodes go up on those other platforms. You could choose to just, you know, listen or watch on uh, YouTube. Um, but if you subscribe to all of them, that really helps. If you review where there's reviews possible, only if it's a good four or five star. And um, comment. Um, also ask questions at YouTube. When you comment, feel free, please, to um, suggest any topics that you would like me to cover in future episodes. I'm really open to hearing what you'd like uh, to hear about, to discuss. Uh, and then again, the issue of Donna, this is not a monetized project. Um, so if you're um, feeling generous, please feel free to send some Donna. Uh, the, the amount is not what's important. It's seeing that people are enjoying this, benefiting from it, and want to share uh, some generosity to support that I can go on with this. Um, really few dollars once in a while. Um, it doesn't have to be a huge commitment if you're so moved. All right. Um, before going into today's topic, I do want to thank those who've offered Donna since the last episode. Uh, Chatra Sandy Greenberg, Hyokin Tatiana Staloff, Weyong Terry Tater. Thank you all for your Donna, for your generosity. All right. So Several years ago, I used to curate a film series here in Tucson uh, at the late departed Tucson Yoga. Uh, and the film series was inspired by Dean Sloiter's book, Cinema Nirvana. In fact, I contacted Dean and asked him if it would be okay if I used the name Cinema Nirvana for the film series. And he was very gracious in saying, sure, of course, go ahead, do it. And um, Cinema Nirvana had a couple of um, points that I really wanted to make by doing the series. And one of which was that there's, there's this idea of Dharma eyes. If we look at things, whatever it is, through Dharma eyes, we can see the Dharma, right? Um, we can see all phenomena really 
embodying and evidencing the Dharma. And so I thought we would bring Dharma eyes to films that were not obvious choices. I, people would immediately, when they heard about Cinema Nirvana, ask if I had done for, you know, The Matrix, for instance. And no, that's a little too obvious. In fact, the most obvious film that I did present was I Heart Huckleby's. And I thought it was obvious, but it turned out that a lot of people did not realize that that is actually pretty explicitly a Buddhist film. So obvious, not obvious. But other films that I showed were really more clearly not obvious uh, films to learn any Dharma from. Films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, Jaws, The Big Sleep, and also episodes from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. One of the episodes was Hush. And those of you who are Buffy fans, you know what I'm talking about. It's a brilliant episode. But I showed a couple of other ones from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a couple of episodes from the early CSI, and I think one or two episodes from Lie to Me. Um, and so, you know, it's these non-obvious films. Now, one of the films I presented that I recently rethought of was after.life, like .com. Right, so it's afterlife, but there's a dot in the middle, after.life. And it's directed by, and, and forgive my pronunciation, Agnieszka Wolczowicz Vasilu. I will write her name in the description so you'll see what it looks like and maybe look her up. Um, if you haven't seen the film, you might want to check out the trailer. You can hit pause on this. And the link for the trailer is in the episode's description as well, just so you get a sense of what this film was about. We are reminded often in Zen that great is the matter of life and death. Sometimes you hear great is the matter of birth and death, which are not necessarily the same thing. Right? A line from the movie, you all say you're scared of death, but you're more scared of life can even be seen as a kind of pointer to this idea that great is the matter of life and death, birth and death. Um, we're, we're scared to live, <laughs> you know, and so we're living as if dead. Now, if you've seen the movie, or maybe now the trailer, as you might expect, the most common dialogue around the film uh, was, is she dead? Or is she alive? Right? And that was what was discussed all the time. And interestingly, at least to me, those who were firmly convinced one way or the other seemed to have liked the film. So the people who were certain she was dead, they liked it. People who were certain she was actually alive, they, were, they liked it. But those who were caught in the uncertainty of not knowing, for the most part, they hated it. <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, any Dharma talk on this film, you might expect that the theme would revolve around what is really the explicit moral of the tale. I mean, it's literally stated baldly at least several times throughout the film that most of us live our lives as already dead. Right? Think about it, right? Buddha means just an awakened being. So the implication is that the rest of us are sleepwalking through life, right? Dharma practice is here to help us wake up, right? 
Now, when I first saw this film, the comment made by the mortician, who I believe is played to creepily fine perfection by Liam Neeson, um, he addresses Anna as a corpse and addressing her says, no one cares about your opinions anymore. And it just reminded me of the famous Wadu, who carries this corpse? It comes from a poem by Husu Yun, who was a renowned and extremely influential Chinese Chan master. Now Chan is the uh, Chinese form of Zen. It, it, Zen <laughs> originated actually in China as Chan. So he lived from 1840 to 1959, which means he died at the age of 119. And he wrote a poem called Years, Months, Days, Hours. And it's from this poem that this Wadu comes. And I'd like to share the whole poem with you now. One year and then another. Appearances gradually change. Bone marrow shrivels. Eyebrows thin away. This time-limited body is like a mound of slurry. In the triple world, earth, air, fire, and water mingle and change. This is all our emotions allow us to notice, and their sight obstructs our view of heaven. One month and then another, the light and dark pass like melting snow. No part can be kept for long. Only the Dharma does not come or go. The lacquer bowl suddenly breaks. You are like the dragon of heaven, born to be lively and free. A rock can't live in a crane's nest. A little jellyal bird needs to stay near mosquito ponds. One day and then another, they never wear themselves out. Give up your judgments about everything. It's all insubstantial in the end. All things under the sun come to an end and dissolve. Spend what time you have in honest simplicity. Just one breath of the eternal admits you to the great chamber. One hour and then another. Inexorably march step by step. Whenever I meet you, we each smile. Who is it who drags your corpse around? Steadfast and unchangeable, always mindful of this or that. You're young and strong, exert yourself. Don't wait, oh, please don't wait until you're much too old and weak. So who drags this corpse around? The Wadu takes us right to the essence of Chan. Now, most people familiar with Zen are familiar with the term the koan, and they may think of the koan as apparently uh, irrational or paradoxical story that is used in Zen Buddhism for contemplation to spur awakening. The wadu is considered the true turning word, the, the, the live word from within the koan. So for instance, 
Does a dog have Buddha nature? Asks the student of Master Joshu, who replies, Mu. Now that's the complete koan, but Mu is the wadu. And for many, practicing with a wadu may seem very abstruse or difficult and bizarre, right? The very way to approach working with one might seem alien or insurmountable. I mean, counting breaths, working with a mantra, or detailed visualization can be challenging enough, but to struggle with what is it? <laughs> that can be mind boggling. One issue that Husu Yun actually warns us about is the belief that we need certain circumstances in order to practice such a demanding practice. He writes, there are cases of the enjoyable state of purity and cleanness realizable in stillness, but not realizable in disturbance. And for this reason, many meditators avoid disturbing conditions and they look for quiet places. They do not realize that they've already agreed to become servants of the demon of both stillness and disturbance. When I first read that, you know, to become a, uh, a servant of the demons of still, stillness and, distur uh, and disturbance, it reminded me of Patanjali talking about being oppressed by the pairs of opposites, right? And that yoga is about transcending that oppression, transcending the pairs of opposites. See for yourself, right? How often do you find yourself struggling to find the right conditions for meditation, thinking that you have to cultivate a spiritual mind in stillness, right? Rather than amidst the chaos of our everyday lives, the full catastrophe as Zorba the Greek refers to it. We may feel that we need stillness and isolation simply in order to practice, that we need to somehow withdraw from the round of daily life. And this is actually encouraged by many traditional approaches to all forms of spiritual practice, including Buddhism. But it's a central teaching of the Zen tradition that anyone can awaken to intimacy with life and nobody can start from anywhere other than where they find themselves and right now in this moment, in this place. As Samusunim would say, just here, just this, just now. As Husu Yun emphasized, to separate conditions of stillness from disturbance in order to find some ideal condition for meditation is to have already succumbed to error. When working with a Hwadu, it's kind of like being told to open your eyes in a totally dark room and then being told, look. In working with a Hwadu, we use the same mind that we use to explore the world of the senses. It's not like there's a separate, more spiritual mind. But we turn that faculty of concentration, of mindfulness, inwards instead of outwards. Or as the Korean master Chinol said, tracing the radiance back. And truly, at first, all we may see is a murky darkness, but before long, that darkness becomes illuminated from within by a most brilliant light.
Ahuadu is designed to take us beyond where our conventionally conditioned minds alone can take us. By forcing the mind to its very limits, we enter into a whole new way of perception, a perception free from the mind's more gross filtering machinery. Now, this is a place where Zen naturalism parts company with traditional Zen. Traditional Zen often teaches that we can go beyond all conditioning and have some kind of unmediated experience. But I believe that we are natural, neural beings. And so as a neural being, such unmediated perception is pure fantasy. What we go beyond is the identification, the attachment to social, cultural, and even some biological conditioning, right? But all of this going beyond occurs nowhere other than within this body brain, right? There is no going beyond all perceptual filters. For instance, we are conditioned to see the colors and forms we see. We are conditioned by our optic system, which includes the brain. We can't see colors that our, our neural system just can't see, right? The infrared or the ultraviolet. We see the colors that we're conditioned to see. But what Zen practice can do is allow us to see those colors free of conditioned associations, right? Like the cultural association of red with anger, right? And really, when you think about it, that's actually quite a lot. The work that of the Wadu is expected to continue during times that are not set aside specifically for meditation, right? And that provides us with the implication that the examination of Wadu is therefore not intended to be a merely rational discursive part of the thinking process, right? If we're supposed to carry this into our lives, it's more about developing a kind of feeling of doubt, what in Zen is often called great doubt, but I prefer questioning, right? And over time, we slowly acquire the skill to carry that questioning mind with us at all times, right? As the Zen proverb puts it, great questioning, great awakening. Little questioning, little awakening. No questioning, no awakening. So that means we can argue with our spouse. We can change soiled diapers. We could be mindful of doing the washing up after dinner while showering or shaving. We can continue questioning. Who is performing this action? Who shaves? Who argues? Who changes this diaper? There is literally nothing that can happen in our lives that we cannot use to give rise to this inquiring, questioning, skeptical mind. We can always ask ourselves, who feels? Who thinks? Who is in pain? Who feels defensive? Who feels insulted? Who hears the train whistle? When we find ourselves suddenly angry, we can question, where was this anger just a minute ago? 
And as we practice, the easier it becomes to give rise to this feeling. When we least expect it, the breakthrough happens, revealing the perfectly clear, unambiguous resolution of our wadu. And note, I speak of resolution, not answer. And when that resolution happens, a blissful flowing energy, what the Buddhists, what the early Buddhists called Nibbana Dhatu, is felt throughout the whole body mind. The wadu, who drags the corpse, is a sword designed for cutting through to the very heart of who. The corpse referred to in the question doesn't simply refer to the physical body. In Buddhist teachings, and common to all of the yoga traditions, mind is also part of this body, a part of this corpse. As all the six senses come together on this wadu, a curious thing happens. We, quote, see the who and the corpse as the same thing. The apparent duality vanished. The sense of an individual self vanishes. It's this realization of anatta, or not-self, that we are led to find by way of this practice. An integral aspect of the essential reality of not-self is realizing that our form is not a unified, permanent whole, but a, rather it's a collection of interacting attributes and characteristics that come together and then eventually move apart. But even now is a fluid, impermanent relationship of conditions, constantly changing. And in Buddhism, these conditions are referred to as the five skandhas. And the word skandha is variously translated as uh, heaps or aggregates. Right? So the corpse is the totality of these temporarily bonded skandhas. Um, a simile that I often present to get a, our, hand, our, our minds around this is think of a pile of laundry. Think of a heap. We can think of it, right? A heap of laundry. Now, we call it the laundry as if it were a unified thing, right? But in fact, it's a heap of undies, socks, shirts, pants, linens, right? And it's just easier to, to, instead of enumerating all these things, to just call it the laundry, what philosophers call a convenient designator. It's just much more convenient to say the laundry. But there is no laundry as this unified thing. In the same way, this is, uh, applies to the, to the body-mind, the, the, the nexus of this being. And the five skandhas are the physical form, the meat body, and then there's feelings. Now, feelings, we're not talking about emotions at this level. We're talking about the actual sensory experiences of, of the body. Like when you say, I feel cold, right? So these feelings are sensations. They can be heavy, light, cool, warm, itchy, sharp, dull, um, they can be very penetrating, they can be expansive, um, tickly, right, effervescent, right? Now, 
Those are the bare sensations. And sensations also involve the, uh, uh, a hedonic tone or a felt sense, right? Which means that the sensations can be experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, right? Now, it's interesting to note, right, that like a cool sensation might be experienced as quite pleasant on a very hot day, but the cool sensation on a very cold day might be very unpleasant. So this is pointing to that there's no self-nature to these sensations. They all depend upon and how our experience of them is all conditioned. Right? There's no self-nature. Now, the third skanda are perceptions. This is our tendency to notice, to label, to describe, and to perceive. Right? And then there are the mental formations. That's the fourth skanda. And these might be recognized as ideas, thinking, beliefs, emotions. Um, ultimately, though, we're, we, we find that mental formations include perceptions and feelings and the body. We experience the body as a mental formation, right? That's why you can experience the body uh, or you could experience yourself as being outside of the body or people who are missing limbs might still experience those limbs there and phantom limb pain and all that because how we actually perceive the body is a mental formation. It's all mental formations. And then the fifth skanda is consciousness which is said to enliven and animate the other four skandhas. So now together these skandhas change, they interact, they coalesce, they create the personal sense of I. But it is this manufactured I identifying with the corpse that the evasive who of the wadu hides behind. Looked at this way, the skandhas are this corpse. There's no duality between body and mind in this wadu. The deepening examination of who it is that enlivens this corpse reveals a nexus of awareness that seemingly both transcends and indwells within this body, this mind, these perceptions and feelings, this apparently limited personal consciousness. The duality is, like all dualities, only apparent a product of our perception, which is one of the skandhas. This who is not a part of the personal self. It's not anything. We use the word who as we look within, but we never find anyone. How could we? Anything found would simply be another concept, another entity, another being limited by its own point of reference its own beginning and end. But we continue to ask who in order to pierce deeper into that emptiness that is truly the core of our own personal self. Here's another example that may help to clarify this if you're confused. We say, throw it away as if there's some kind of a way. Where is a way? Is there such a place? Or one of my favorite examples, we say it is raining. Yesterday it was sunny. But we kind of forget that there is no it separate from the rain or from the sunshine. Right? Show me the it. There's no it behind it. 
behind the weather, what's happening. And in a similar way, we talk of our feelings, our ideas, as if there's some entity behind, beyond, below, or above the changing phenomena of feelings and ideas that these happen to or something or belong to, but try to find it. And it cannot ever be found. Every moment of every day, and not simply in seated meditation, reality itself presents us with this huadu. What are we? Who or what is it that responds to each thought, each perception, each feeling? The answer cannot be any of the skandhas or even any combination of the skandhas because we're not the body or our ideas or perceptions or the changing energies. So what is this who? As we ask who drags this corpse and as we look deeper into this space of unknowing, we find that as our focus deepens, our words, and the corpse falls away. Finally, we're left with just who and what then? So putting aside our self images, our hopes and fears, and if you think about it, aren't hopes and fears just two sides of the same thing, right? If we can put aside our memories and our expectations, at least for the purposes of pursuing the not knowing that is necessary for working with the Wadu, ask as full-heartedly as possible, as consistently. Again, you don't have to ask literally over and over again like a mantra, but can you help to create this questioning mind, right? Full-heartedly, as intimately as possible. Who? In the episode description, I'll also include some resources that if you're at all interested in learning more about the practice of Wadu and uh, Koan. Um, but really, cultivating a kind of questioning orientation to experience keeps us in that state, and that's where it's all about. Again, please consider supporting this podcast in any way that you can. And stay well until next time we visit Bups' Dharma Lounge. <laughs>